Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to bonus episode number eight. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing two stories for you about fearsome formations and mental maladies, both of them plumbed from the depths of my extensive audio archive. I sincerely hope you enjoy them and that you'll join me each and every Wednesday for more terrifying tales from my creep-filled crypt. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy even more tales from my archives, 
visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up as a patron today at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. There you'll get access to my audio archives dating back to 2012, including one-off stories and extended episodes of my podcast, all of them ad-free. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us courtesy of author K.E. Moore. In it, a widower's daughter shows an interest in a mysterious pile of rocks down the street with unwanted consequences. Without further ado, I present to you, Told You So. It was about a year ago when my daughter and I moved out of Charleston and into Goose Creek partly to get away from big city life and partly to put the business of her mother behind us. Between the crime, busy streets, and bad memories, I felt we should trade the concrete and streetlights for tall grass and trees adorned with Spanish moss. My boss, understanding the tragedy our family had suffered, allowed me to telecommute as long as I didn't stray too far from the home office. We found a house that backed up against the Goose Creek Reservoir, far enough away from the naval base to grant us the tranquility we were looking for. It was a gorgeous two-story house, made to look like one of those old plantation houses, though admittedly a little more modest in size. But the three bedrooms were more than enough for Chelsea and me, I got the master bedroom and converted the smallest into my office. Chelsea, well, she just loved her room. It was twice as big as her old room with hardwood floors and a window looking out over the reservoir. We spent a whole day in old clothes painting her room pink. I'm not sure if we got more paint on ourselves or the walls for all the horsing around we did. It didn't matter. It seemed like the first time either of us had really laughed in a long while. I can still hear her giggles echoing through the house. There, surrounded by the steamy summer humidity and muzzy paint fumes, we were happy, the two of us. Goose Creek seemed like a new beginning we both needed after her mother passed on. Well, the summer came and went, as summers do in the south, hot and muggy. When a breeze came off the reservoir, it would be something of a relief, but summer in South Carolina was summer in South Carolina. Lots of shade, iced tea, and showers just to keep the film of perspiration at bay. School came, riding on the winds of autumn, Chelsea was nervous, of course, and even started to cry a little on the first day of school, despite being almost ten. After losing one parent, I knew she didn't want to let go of me, but it took her only a week or so before she was coming home every day with a bright, big smile on her face. 
A smaller school meant fewer bullies, and it seemed more kids eager to make a new friend. Before we knew it, we had slipped straight through a mild winter and were stirring down another summer. A whole year had passed, and we had carved out a simple, pleasant life for ourselves. I was excited to have my little girl around the house during the day, but there was one huge obstacle. Work. When most people hear telecommuting, they think of waking up when you want to, doing your work at your own pace, and only putting on proper clothes if if you feel like it. The reality of telecommuting was not so grand. Working from home still meant full work days, client calls at all hours of the day, and being checked on regularly by the boss via webcam. This, however, was another benefit to Goose Creek. I felt comfortable letting Chelsea go out and explore, ride a bike, or walk to her friend's house. I made a point of making sure she stopped back at the house for lunch every day. We also had a long discussion about how far she was allowed to roam, and that she wasn't to play near the reservoir while I was working. Chelsea didn't fuss one bit. She never experienced so much freedom in her life. One day in late June, that my little girl walked in the house at half past eleven. Her pink t-shirt and shorts were cleaner than normal, and her auburn ponytail wasn't half as frazzled as it was on most summer days. She met me in the kitchen with a quizzical look on her face. She climbed onto one of the stools by a big window facing the street and asked, Daddy, what are they doing at the end of the street? I turned to look out the window and frowned. I don't know, Chelbert. What does it look like they're doing? Chelsea shrugged as she pulled her plate close. I had made tuna sandwiches and iced tea, and she had taken a big bite and was still chewing when she said, No, looks like digging or something. Manners, I said. She swallowed a bite and repeated herself more clearly. Looks like they're digging, but I don't know why. It was my turn to shrug. Probably just road work or something, I said before biting into my own sandwich. Can I explore after lunch, she asked. Well, I, I don't know if that's a good idea, Chelbert. Could be dangerous. I'll be careful, Daddy, promise. She put on her big-eyed expression, the one that is supposed to melt a father in place, and one that I had fought hard against, which to build up resistance. At the same time, I remembered when I was her age, and how I probably wouldn't even have bothered asking my parents. When I thought back to the trouble I'd get into, I wondered how it was I ever made it to adulthood. Finally, I relented, but only a bit. You can ask the workers if there are any that aren't too busy, but that's it, understand? You aren't to cross any boundaries or touch anything. We got a deal? Chelsea looked at me like she was going to try to haggle with me on the terms. She did that sometimes. She thought better of it, and with her big bright smile nodded and said, Deal! We finished our sandwiches and tea. Chelsea hurriedly washed up before dashing out of the house. 
the screen door banging loudly in her wake. I carried myself back to my office, checked in with my boss, and forgot all about the road work Chelsea was so excited about at lunch. Chelsea was eager to remind me when she brought it back up later in the evening as I threw some burgers on the grill for dinner. There wasn't anybody there when I went to go look, Daddy, she said, pouting a little. Anybody, I corrected her. She scowled that scowl that said I knew what she meant. It was her mother's scowl. Ignoring it, I told her she could try again in the morning after breakfast, and that, combined with the burgers topped with lots of ketchup, seemed to satisfy her. I suppose I half expected her to forget about the whole thing. Maybe I didn't expect anything at all. It just wasn't something that was registering on my radar until the morning came. And Chelsea could hardly wait to rush out and see what was going on down the road. She was half out the door when I called her back to remind her to brush her teeth. After up her functory scrubbing, she gave me a half-hearted hug and bolted. Strange, I thought, and I found myself following her footsteps out to the edge of my front lawn to get a better look at what had captivated her so. I looked down the road in the same direction Chelsea was jogging and saw nothing more than a pile of rubble on the side of the road. There were no road signs or caution tape, just a mound of black and gray rocks. It seemed harmless enough, but at the same time I felt a sense of apprehension creep up through my gut and latch onto my spine. You be careful and remember what I told you, Chelbear. I hollered after her. She looked back over her shoulder and smiled at me, her hand giving me the thumbs up before returning her attention to the rubble pile. I shook my head and made my way back inside. I had a web meeting with some new clients to prepare for. When I got back to my office, I discovered that I could actually see just a sliver of the rubble pile from my office window. The needs of my meeting drew my attention away, but when I logged off of the group video chat, I grabbed a cup of coffee and found myself staring down the road at the heap. Chelsea was nowhere to be seen, probably off to go visit one of her friends. No doubt the allure of the rocks had already worn off. But it was odd. If it was road work, it should have been somewhere, somewhere a sign or something. And there should have been workers, too, with day-glow vests and hard hats. There was no one there. I was about to put together a report from my boss on the meeting when movement from the rubble stopped me. Fear swiftly, shooting down my throat and forming a solid, heavy pit in my stomach. There was someone there working after all, but it was all wrong. It was a pretty long street, so I couldn't be sure exactly of what I was seeing, but Dayglow is pretty unmistakable, and this guy wasn't wearing any at all. Instead, his tall, gaunt frame was dressed in black from head to toe, long sleeves and all. That bit I found out. Who would dress like that in this heat? Odder still was his hat. He looked like he was wearing one of those old stovepipe hats. I didn't even know they made those anymore, outside maybe costume shops and elementary school classrooms. But there was, in all black, the stovepipe hat, and a shovel slung over his shoulder. 
The curious figure vanished behind the pile. It was such a strange image, I was tempted to think it was just my over, overreactive imagination. Real or not, all thoughts of the unsettling figure were pushed out of my mind by the chime from my computer, informing me that my boss needed to chat with me. The noise startled me so much that I spilled coffee all over a stack of my reports, ultimately pushing the image of the dark stranger out of my mind so I could focus on the newly burgeoning coffee crisis, along with the numbers and contractual obligations and everything else that came up in the meeting. At lunch, Chelsea informed me that, again, to her disappointment, she didn't find any men working at the site. But she did have something new to share. Daddy, there's something strange about those rocks. What's that, Chelsea? Well, I don't think they're rocks at all. Why is that? They're all smooth and shiny. I've never seen any rocks in the wild as smooth and shiny as that, she said, putting on a facial expression that declared to the world that she was an expert on the subject of smoothness of natural rocks. I love that bit. I frowned. You didn't go messing about in that pile, did you, Chell Bear? Of course not, Daddy. I was just looking, and when no one turned up, I went on over to Teresa's. Her daddy put up swing tire. For a moment, I contemplated telling her about the man in the blind clothes and stovepipe hat, but then thought better of it. I didn't know what was going on down the street, but I figured the less curiosity I encouraged, the better. There was no more discussion of the rubble at the end of the street until that evening. It was too hot to cook, so I made a quick salad and cut up some leftover chicken for dinner. The two of us were eating on the back patio when Chelsea said, Whatever they're doing, they're definitely digging. Oh? Mm-hmm. There's a big old ditch just on the other side of the pile, Chelsea said. Did you ever find someone to tell you what it's all about, I asked. Chelsea shook her head, clearly frustrated. No... But I aim to find out, she declared. I think now, if it weren't for the new client and all the extra hoops my boss was making me jump through to make the new contract work, I would have put an end to things then and there. But as it was, I had to spend the evening running numbers as Chelsea watched TV and the rubble pile was yet again pushed aside. I didn't even think about it again until a few days later at lunch when Chelsea announced... Daddy, I think those rocks are broken up tombstones. Now, what in the world would make you say a thing like that, I said, as my fork hovered between my plate and my mouth. My mind instantly reverted back to the tall figure in the stovepipe hat, and an uneasy, prickling sensation crawled down my spine. Well, like I said, they all smooth and shiny, and I think I saw some writing on some of them. I think one little girl's imagination is running away with her is what I think, I said pointedly. Chelsea responded with her patented scowl. I was about to forbid her from looking into the pile any further, but sometimes the quickest and surest way to make sure a kid does a thing is to forbid her to do it. So I let the subject drop. We went back to our normal routine, Chelsea running out the front door, me slogging back to my office. 
Again, I spared the heap of rocks another look. The ditch. The man in black. Chelsea's assertion that they were crumbled up tombstones. It all just kind of balled itself up into one tiny knot of unease in my stomach. But then I stared at the mound and thought, Hell, it's just some rocks. Maybe the neighbor's digging them up for laying a new driveway. There were a ton of completely rational explanations, none of which were the least bit frightening. And that was all I thought about it, until Chelsea came back home for supper holding a big gray-black hunk of something. She thrust it into my hands as I looked on, dumbfounded. With a triumphant air, she put her hands on her hips and said, Told you so. I looked down at the hard, heavy mass in my hand. It was indeed smooth and polished on several of its sides, rough and irregular on others, and it was mottled gray and black, kind of like those fancy countertops you sometimes see in newer kitchens. And there, on one of the smooth, glossy faces, was a carved uppercase T. For one, Chalbert, this doesn't prove a thing. This could have come from a statue or a plaque or a sign or anything. Just because someone carved some letters into a rock doesn't make it a tombstone, I explained. For another, I thought I said you weren't to be messing around with that pile. I made myself very clear. You were allowed to ask whoever was working what they were doing, and that was it. I didn't yell at Chelsea often. She rarely ever needed it. But when I did yell at her, she always looked so wounded, so hurt. I'm sorry, Daddy, she said in a small voice, and I, well, hell, I just gave her a hug and sent her to go wash up for supper. I hoped the whole episode was over. I wanted it to be over. But when Chelsea came in for lunch the next day, any thoughts of that mystery of the rubble pile was a thing of the past were completely ruined. Daddy, that worked. It has to do with dead people, I'm sure of it. Caught somewhere between inhaling my soup and spitting it back out, I ended up with a violent coughing fit that only made my temper worse. Damn it, Chelsea. I thought I made myself clear. Now this has gone on long enough. Do you understand? No more. But no buts. You seem to have forgotten, young lady, that I am your father. Is that clear? Her eyes wobbled in a pool of fledging tears. Normally that would have been enough to get me to calm down, but by now I was yelling, Is that clear? She didn't answer as tears spilled down her round cheeks and her lips quivered. Chelsea opened her mouth almost as if to speak, then a glint of defiance shone through the tears, and in a flash she pushed away from the table. There was a single, searing moment where contempt flashed in her eyes, and then I watched as she ran out of the house. I was about to chase her down when my phone rang. I considered ignoring it, but if I ignored even one of my calls from my boss, I would lose the telecommute privileges. Hissing curses under my breath, I checked the phone and answered it. I should have gone after her. I know that now. But the next thing I knew, I was chained to my computer, hunting down all the technicalities my boss needed to make his new contract work. The time for Chelsea to come home had come and gone. I was already worried when she stormed out of the house, but when the sun had started to get bloated and red and she still wasn't home, I was on the verge of panic. Outside, 
The shadows began to stretch and deepen, and the rock pile down the road took on a strange, dark, mysterious quality. Unsure what to do, I started looking through the list of moms in my address book. I bit back the worry in my voice as I called one after another, trying not to let the fear show, even as I asked if they had seen my daughter. Each call ended up being a different variation of the same theme. No, sorry, Chelsea hasn't been here today. Is something wrong? I was about to call the fifth mom when I heard the back door swing open and slam shut. Oh, thank God, I breathed, not even bothering to hang the phone back in its cradle. Shell bear, honey, I'm so glad you... The words died in my throat, my muscles locking up as I turned the corner and stepped into the kitchen. Terror poured over me as I stared at the thing in my kitchen. It was a man, or at least it once had been a man, though how long ago was impossible to say. Where there should have been skin and eyes, there was now only bone caked in black soil, eye sockets empty as they stared blankly back at me. His clothes were once fine, a black tuxedo or at least a good suit, but the shirt had been torn to shreds, revealing his ribcage, mottled gray with rot and earth. Underneath I could make out shriveled, blackened organs turned hard and formless with time, held in place by clumps of fitted soil. One hand clutched a stovepipe hat, almost as though this thing was too polite to wear it indoors. The other hand rested on the shoulder of my baby girl, Chelsea. Her skin was ashen, her hair limp, and her eyes empty, almost as though they had been as hollow as those of the corpse beside her. That dead, empty gaze turned up to me, and in a small voice I could only just recognize as belonging to my daughter, she said, Told you so. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed Told You So by K.E. Moore, as performed by yours truly. Up next, we've got one final round of frightening fiction for you. From author Matt Demersky comes a creepypasta classic about a gentleman whose imaginations get the better of him 
one day and decides that no one, not even his own friends or family, can be trusted. If they're even his friends and family in the first place, can anyone save our protagonist before he completes his descent into the fathomless pits of paranoia? Or will we discover that he's got cause for alarm after all? Stay tuned and find out. Without further ado, I present to you Psychosis. Sunday. I'm not sure why I'm writing this down on paper and not on my computer. I guess I've just noticed some odd things. It's not that I don't trust the computer. I just need to organize my thoughts. I need to get it all down, all the details, somewhere objective, somewhere I know that what I write can't be deleted or changed. Not that that's happened. It's just everything blurs together here, and the fog of memory lends a strange cast to things. I'm starting to feel cramped in this small apartment. Maybe that's my problem. I just had to go and choose the cheapest apartment, the only one in the basement. The lack of windows down here makes day and night seem to slip by seamlessly. I haven't been out in a few days because I've been working on this programming project so intensively. I suppose I just wanted to get it done. Hours of sitting and staring at a monitor can make anyone feel strange, I know. But I don't think that's it. I'm not sure when I first started to feel like something was odd. I can't even define what it is. Maybe I just haven't talked to anyone in a while. That's the first thing that crept up on me. Everyone I normally talk to online while I program has been idle, or they've simply not logged on at all. My instant messages go unanswered. The last email I got from anybody was a friend saying he'd talk to me when he got back from the store, and that was yesterday. I'd call with my cell phone, but reception's terrible down there. Yeah, that's it. I just need to call someone. I'm going to go outside. Well, that didn't work so well. As the tingle of fear fades, I'm feeling a little ridiculous for being scared at all. I looked in the mirror before I went out, but I didn't shave the two-day stubble I've grown. I figured I was just going out for a quick cell phone call. I did change my shirt, though because it was lunchtime, and I guessed that I'd run into at least one person I knew. That didn't end up happening. Wish it did. When I went out, I opened the door to my small apartment slowly. A small feeling of apprehension had somehow already lodged itself in me, for some indefinable reason. I chalked it up to not having spoken to anyone but myself for a day or two peered down the dingy gray hallway, made dingier by the fact that it was a basement hallway. On one end, a large metal door led to the building's furnace room. It was locked, of course. Two dreary soda machines stood by it. I bought a soda from one the first day I moved in, but it had a two-year-old expiration date. I'm fairly sure nobody knows those machines are even down here, or my cheap landlady just doesn't care to get them restocked. I closed my door softly and walked the other direction, taking care not to make a sound. I have no idea why I chose to do that, but it was fun giving in to the strange impulse 
not to break the droning hum of the soda machine, at least for the moment. I got to the stairwell and took the stairs up to the building's front door. I looked through the heavy door's small square window and received quite the shock. It was definitely not lunchtime. Sooty gloom hung over the dark street outside, and the traffic lights at the intersection in the distance blinked yellow. Dim clouds, purple and black, from the glow of the city hung overhead. Nothing moved, save the few sidewalk trees that shifted in the wind. I remember shivering, though it wasn't cold. Maybe it was the outside wind. I could vaguely hear it through the heavy metal door, and I knew it was that unique kind of late-night wind, the kind that was constant, cold, and quiet, save for the rhythmic music it made as it passed through countless unseen tree leaves. I decided not to go outside. Instead, I lifted my cell phone to the door's little window and checked the signal meter. The bars filled up the meter, and I smiled. Time to hear someone else's voice, I remember thinking, relieved. It was such a strange thing to be afraid of nothing. I shook my head, laughing at myself silently. I hit speed dial for my best friend Amy's number and held the phone up to my ear. It rang once, and it stopped. Nothing happened. I listened to silence for a good twenty seconds, then hung up. I frowned and looked at the signal meter again. Still full. I went to dial her number again, but then my phone rang in my hand, startling me. I put it up to my ear. Hello? I asked, immediately fighting down a small shock at hearing the first spoken voice in days, even if it was my own. I'd gotten used to the droning hum of the building's inner workings, my computer and the soda machines in the hallway. There was no response to my greeting at first, but then, finally, a voice came. Hey, said a clear male voice, obviously of college age like me. Who's this? John, I replied, confused. Oh, sorry, wrong number, he replied, then he hung up. I lowered the phone slowly and leaned against the thick brick wall of the stairwell. How strange. I looked at my received calls list, but the number was unfamiliar. Before I could think on it further, the phone rang loudly, shocking me yet again. This time, I looked at this caller before I answered. It was another unfamiliar number. This time I held the phone up to my ear, but said nothing. I heard nothing but the general background noise of the phone. Then a familiar voice broke my tension. John was the single word in Amy's voice. I breathed a sigh of relief. Hey, it's you, I replied. Well, who else would it be, she responded. Oh, the number. I'm at a party on 7th Street and my phone died, just as you called me. This is someone else's phone, obviously. Oh, okay, I said. Where are you? She asked. My eyes glanced over the drab, whitewashed cylinder block walls and the heavy metal door with its small window. At my building, I sighed, just feeling cooped up. I didn't realize it was so late. Oh, you should come here, she said, laughing. Nah, I don't feel like looking for some strange place by myself in the middle of the night. I said, looking out the window at the silent, windy street that secretly scared me just a tiny bit. I think I'm just going to keep working or go to bed. Nonsense, she replied. I can come get you. Your building is close to 7th Street, right? How drunk are you? I asked lightheartedly. You know where I live. 
Oh, of course, she said abruptly. I guess I can't get there by walking, huh? You could if you wanted to waste a half hour, I told her. Right, she said. Okay, have to go. Good luck with your work. I lowered the phone once more, looking at the numbers flash as the call ended. Then the droning silence suddenly reasserted itself in my ears. The true strange calls in the eerie street outside just drove home my aloneness in this empty stairwell. Perhaps, from having seen too many scary movies, I had the sudden, inexplicable idea that something could look in the door's window and see me. Some sort of horrible entity that hovered at the edge of aloneness, just waiting to creep up on the unsuspecting people that strayed too far from other human beings. I knew the fear was irrational, but nobody else was around, so I jumped down the stairs, ran down the hallway into my room, and closed the door as swiftly as I could while still staying silent. Like I said, I feel a little ridiculous for being scared of nothing, and the fear has already faded. Writing this down helps a lot. makes me realize that nothing is wrong. It filters out half-formed thoughts and fears and leaves only cold, hard facts. It's late. I got a call from a wrong number, and Amy's phone died, so she called me back from another number. Nothing strange is happening. Still, there was something a little off about that conversation. I know it could have been just the alcohol she'd had, or was it even her that seemed off to me? Or was it? Yes, that was it. I didn't realize it until this moment, writing these things down. I knew writing things down would help. She said she was at a party, but I only heard silence in the background. Of course, that doesn't mean anything in particular, as she could have just gone outside to make the call. No, that couldn't be it either. I didn't hear the wind. I need to see if the wind is still blowing. Monday. I forgot to finish writing last night. I'm not sure what I expected to see when I ran up the stairwell and looked out the heavy metal door's window. I'm feeling ridiculous. Last night's fear seemed hazy and unreasonable to me now. I can't wait to go out into the sunlight. I'm going to check my email, shave, shower, and finally get out of here. Wait, I think I heard something. It was thunder. That whole sunlight and fresh air thing, it didn't happen. I went out into the stairwell and up the stairs only to find disappointment. The heavy metal door's little window showed only flowing water as torrential rain slammed against it. Only a very dim, gloomy light filtered in through the air, but at least I knew it was daytime, even if it was a gray, sickly wet day. I tried looking out the window waiting for lightning to illuminate the gloom, but the rain was too heavy, and I didn't make out anything more than vague, weird shapes moving at odd angles and the waves washing down the window. Disappointed, I turned around, but I didn't want to go back to my room. Instead, I wandered further upstairs past the first floor and the second. The stairs ended at the third floor, the highest floor in the building. I looked through the glass that ran up the outer wall of the stairwell, but it was that warped, thick kind that scatters the light, not that there was much to see through the rain to begin with. I opened the stairwell door and wandered down the hallway. The ten or so thick wooden doors, painted blue a long time ago, were all closed. I listened as I walked, but it was the middle of the day, so I wasn't surprised that I heard nothing but the rain outside. 
As I stood there in the dim hallway listening to the rain, I had a strange fleeting impression that the doors were standing like silent granite monoliths erected by some ancient forgotten civilization for some unfathomable guardian purpose. Lightning flashed, and I could have sworn that for just a moment, the old grainy blue wood looked just like a rough stone. I laughed at myself, uh, letting my imagination get the best of me. But then it occurred to me that the dim gloom and lightning must mean that there was a window somewhere, somewhere in the hallway. A vague memory surfaced, and I suddenly recalled that the third floor had an alcove and an inset window halfway down the floor's hallway. Excited to look out into the rain and possibly see another human being, I quickly walked over to the alcove, finding the large thin glass window. Rain washed down it, as with the front door's window, but I could open this one. I reached a hand out to slide it open, but hesitated. I had the strangest feeling that if I opened that window, I would see something absolutely horrifying on the other side. Everything's been so odd lately. So I came up with a plan. I came back here to get what I needed. I don't seriously think anything will come of it, but I'm bored. It's raining and I'm going stir-crazy. I came back to get my webcam. The cord isn't long enough to reach the third floor by any means, so instead... I'm going to hide it between the two soda machines in the dark end of my basement hallway and run the wire along the wall and under my door and put black duct tape over the wire to blend it in with the black plastic strip that runs along the base of the hallway's walls. I know this is silly, but I don't have anything better to do. Well, nothing happened. I propped open the hallway to stairwell door, steeled myself, and then flung the heavy door open wide and ran like hell down the stairs to my room and slammed the door. I watched the webcam on my computer intently, seeing the hallway outside my door and most of the stairwell. I'm watching it right now, and I don't see anything interesting. I just wish the camera's position was different so that I could see out the front door. Hey, somebody's online. I got out an older, less functional webcam that I had in my closet to video chat with my friend online. I couldn't really explain to him why I wanted a video chat, but it felt good to see another person's face. He couldn't talk very long, and we didn't talk about anything meaningful, but I feel much better. My strange fear has almost passed. It felt completely better, but there was something odd about our conversation. I know that I've said that everything has seemed odd, but still, he was very vague in his responses. I can't recall one specific thing that he said, no particular name or place or event. But he did ask for my email address just to keep in touch. Wait, I just got an email. I'm about to go out and just got an email from Amy that asked me to meet her for dinner at the place we usually go to. I do love pizza and I've just been eating random food from my poorly stocked fridge for days so I can't wait. Again, I feel ridiculous about the odd couple of days I've been having. I should destroy this journal when I get back. Oh, another email. Oh my god. I almost left the email and opened the door. I almost opened the door. I almost opened the door, but I read the email first. It was from a friend I hadn't heard from in a long time and it was sent to a huge number of emails that must have been every person he had saved in his address list. 
It had no subject, and it said simply, Seen with your own eyes, don't trust them. They... What the hell is that supposed to mean? The words shock me, and I keep going over and over them. Is it a desperate email, sent just as something happened? The words are obviously cut off without finishing. On any other day, I would have dismissed this as spam from a computer virus or something. But the words... Seen with your own eyes. I can't help but read over this journal and think back on the last few days and realize that I have not seen another person with my own eyes or talked to another person face to face. The webcam conversation with my friends was so strange, so vague, so eerie, now that I think about it. Was it eerie? Or is the fear clouding my memory? My mind toys with progressions of events I've written here, pointing out that I have not been presented with one single fact that I did not specifically give out unsuspectingly. The random wrong number that got my name and the subsequent strange return call Amy, the friend that asked for my email address. I messaged him first when I saw him online. Then I got my first email a few minutes after that conversation. Oh my God, that phone call with Amy. I said over the phone, I said that I was within half an hour's walk of 7th Street. They know I'm near there. What if they're trying to find me? Where is everyone else? Why haven't I seen or heard anyone else in days? No, 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 no. This is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. I need to calm down. This madness needs to end. I don't know what to think. I ran about my apartment furiously, holding my cell phone up to every corner to see if I got a signal through the heavy walls. Finally, in the tiny bathroom near one ceiling corner, I got a single bar. Holding my phone there, I sent a text message to every number in my list. Not wanting to betray anything about my unfound fears, I simply sent, Have you seen anyone face-to-face -face lately? At that point, I just wanted any reply back. I didn't care what the reply was or if I was embarrassed myself. I tried to call someone a few times, but I couldn't get my head up high enough. And if I brought the phone down even an inch, it lost signal. Then I remembered the computer and rushed over to it, instant messaging, everyone online. Most were idle or away from their computer. Nobody responded. My messages grew more frantic, and I started telling people where I was and to stop by in person for a host of barely passable reasons. I didn't care about anything by that point. I just needed to see another person. I also tore apart my apartment looking for something that I might have missed. Some way to contact another human being without opening the door. I know it's crazy. I know it's unfounded. But what if? What if? I just need to be sure. I taped the phone to the ceiling in case. Tuesday. The phone rang. Exhausted from last night's rampage, I must have fallen asleep. I woke up to the phone ringing and ran to the bathroom, stood on the toilet, and flipped open the phone taped to the ceiling. It was Amy, and I feel so much better. She was really worried about me and apparently had been trying to contact me since the last time I talked to her. She's coming over now, and yes, yes, she knows where I am without me telling her. I feel so embarrassed. 
I'm definitely throwing this journal away before anyone sees it. I don't even know why I'm writing in it now. Maybe it's just because it's the only communication I've had at all since God knows when. I look like hell, too. I looked in the mirror before I came back in here. My eyes are sunken, my stubble is thicker, and I just look generally unhealthy. My apartment is trashed, but I'm not going to clean it up. I think I need someone else to see what I've been through. These past few days have not been normal. I'm not one to imagine things. I know I've been the victim of extreme probability. I probably missed seeing another person a dozen times. I just happened to go out when it was late at night or the middle of the day when everyone was gone. Everything's perfectly fine. I know this now. Plus, I found something in the closet last night that has helped me tremendously. A television. I set it up just before I wrote this, and it's on in the background. Television has always been an escape for me, and it reminds me that there's a world beyond these dingy brick walls. I'm glad Amy, the only one that responded to me after last night's frantic pestering of everyone I could contact, she's been my best friend for years. She doesn't know it, but I count the day that I met her among one of the few moments of true happiness in my life. I remember that warm summer day fondly. It seems a different reality from this dark, rainy, lonely place. I feel like I spent days sitting in that playground, much too old to play, just talking with her and hanging around doing nothing at all. I still feel like I can go back to that moment sometimes, and it reminds me that this damn place is not all that there is. Finally, a knock on the door. I thought that it was odd that I couldn't see her through the camera I hid between the two soda machines. I figured that it was bad positioning, like when I couldn't see out the front door. I should have known. I should have known. After the knock, I yelled through the door jokingly that I had a camera between the soda machines because I was embarrassed myself that I had taken this paranoia so far. After I did that, I saw her image walk over to the camera and look down on it. She smiled and waved. Hey, she said to the camera brightly, giving it a wry look. It's weird, I know. I said, into the mic attached to my computer. I've had a weird few days. Must have, she replied. Open the door, John. I hesitated. How could I be sure? Hey, humor me here a second, I told her through the mic. Tell me one thing about us, just to prove to me you're you. She gave the camera a weird look. Mm, all right, she said slowly, thinking. We met randomly at a playground when we were both way too old to be there. I sighed deeply as reality returned and fear faded. God, I'd been so ridiculous. Of course it was Amy. That day wasn't anywhere in the world except in my memory. I'd never even mentioned it to anyone, not out of embarrassment, but out of a strange secret nostalgia and a longing for those days to return. If there was some unknown force at work trying to trick me, as I feared, there was no way they could know about that day. <laughs> All right, I'll explain everything I told her. Be right there. I ran to my small bathroom, fixed my hair as best I could. Oh, I looked like hell, but she'd understand. Snickering at my own unbelievable behavior and the mess I'd made of the place, I walked through the door. I put my hand on the doorknob and gave the mess one last look. So ridiculous, I thought. My eyes traced over the half-eaten food lying on the ground. 
The overflowing trash bin and the bed I tipped to the side, looking for God knows what. I almost turned to the door and opened it, but my eyes fell on one last thing. The old webcam, the one I used for that eerily vacant chat with my friend. Its silent black sphere lay haphazardly tossed on its side, its lens pointed at the table where this journal lay. An overwhelming terror took me as I realized that if something could see through that camera, it would have seen what I just wrote about that day. I asked her for any one thing about us, and she chose the only thing in the world that I thought they or it did not know. But it did. It did know. It could have been watching me the whole time. I didn't open the door. I screamed. I screamed in uncontrollable terror. I stomped on the old webcam on the floor. The door shook and the doorknob tried to turn, but I didn't hear Amy's voice through the door. Was the basement door made to keep out drafts too thick? Or was Amy not outside? What could have been trying to get in if not her? What the hell is out there? I saw her on my computer through the camera outside. I heard her on the speakers through the camera outside. But was it real? How can I know? She's gone now. I screamed and shouted for help. I piled up everything in my apartment against the front door. Friday. At least I think that it's Friday. I broke everything electronic. I smashed my computer to pieces. Every single thing on there could have been accessed by network access, or worse, altered. I'm a programmer, I know. Every little piece of information I gave out since this started. My name, my email, my location. None of it came back from outside until I gave it out. I've been going over and over what I wrote. I've been pacing back and forth, alternating between stark terror and overpowering disbelief. Sometimes, I'm absolutely certain some phantom entity is dead set on the simple goal of getting me to go outside. Back to the beginning, with a phone call from Amy. She was effectively asking me to open the door and go outside. I keep running through it in my head. One point of view says I've acted like a madman. And all of this is the extreme convergence of probability. Never going outside at the right times by pure luck. Never seeing another person by pure chance. Getting a random nonsense email from some computer virus at just the right time. The other point of view says that extreme convergence of probability is the reason that whatever's out there hasn't gotten me already. I keep thinking, I never opened the window on the third floor. I never opened the front door until that incredibly stupid stunt with the hidden camera, after which I ran straight to my room and slammed the door. I haven't opened my own solid door since I flung open the front door of the building. Whatever's out there, if anything's out there, never made an appearance in the building before I opened the front door. Maybe the reason it wasn't in the building already was that it was elsewhere getting everyone else. And then it waited until I betrayed my existence by trying to call Amy, a call which didn't work until it called me and asked me my name. Terror literally overwhelms me every time I try to fit pieces of this nightmare together. That email, short, cut off. Was it from someone trying to get word out? Some friendly voice desperately trying to warn me before it came? Seen with my own eyes, don't trust him. Exactly what I've been so suspicious of. 
It could have masterful control of all things electronic, practicing its insidious deception to trick me into coming outside. Why can't it get in? It knocked on the door. It must have some solid presence. The door. The image of those doors in the upper hallway as guardian monoliths flashes back in my mind every time I trace the path of thoughts. If there is some phantom entity trying to get to me to go outside, maybe it can't get through doors. I keep thinking back over all the books I've read or movies I've seen, trying to generate some explanation for this. Doors have always been such intense foci of human imagination, always seen as wards or portals of special importance. Or perhaps the door is just too thick. I know that I couldn't bash through any of the doors in this building, let alone the heavy basement ones. Aside from that, the real question is why does it even want me? If it just wanted to kill me, it could do it any number of ways, including just waiting until I starve to death. What if it doesn't want to kill me? What if it has some far more horrific fate in store for me? God, what can I do to escape this nightmare? A knock on the door. I told the people on the other side of the door I needed a minute to think, and I'll come out. I'm really just writing this down so I can figure out what to do. At least this time I heard their voices, my paranoia, and yes, I recognize I'm being paranoid, has me thinking of all sorts of ways that their voices could be faked electronically. There could be nothing but speakers outside simulating human voices. Did it really take them three days to come talk to me? Amy is supposedly out there along with two policemen and a psychiatrist. Maybe it took him three days to think of what to say to me. The psychiatrist's claim could be pretty convincing. If I decided to think this has all been a crazy misunderstanding and not some entity trying to trick me into opening the door. The psychiatrist had an older voice, authoritarian, but still caring. I liked it. I'm desperate just to see someone with my own eyes. He said I have something called cyberpsychosis, and I'm just one of a nationwide epidemic of thousands of people having breakdowns triggered by a suggestive email that got through somehow. I swear, he said, got through somehow. I think he means spread throughout the country inexplicably, but I'm incredibly suspicious that the entity slipped up and revealed something. He said I'm part of a wave of emergent behavior that a lot of other people are having the same problem with the same fears, even though we've never communicated. That neatly explains the strange emails about eyes that I got. I didn't get the original triggering email. I got a descendant of it. My friend could have broken down too and tried to warn everyone he knew against his paranoid fears. That's how the problem spreads, the psychiatrist claims. I could have spread it too with my texts and instant messages online to everyone I know. One of those people might be melting down right now after being triggered by something I sent to them. Something they might interpret any way that they want. Something like a text saying, Seen anyone face to face lately? The psychiatrist told me that he didn't want to lose another one. That people like me are intelligent, and that's our downfall. We draw connections so well that we draw them even when they shouldn't be there. He said it's easy to get caught up in paranoia in our fast-paced world. A constantly changing place, where more and more of our interaction is simulated. I have to give him one thing. It's a great explanation. It neatly explains everything. 
It explains perfectly everything, in fact. I have every reason to shake off this nightmarish fear that something or consciousness or being out there wants me to open the door so it can capture me for some horrible fate worse than death. It could be foolish, after hearing that explanation, to stay in here until I starve to death, just despite the entity that might have got everyone else. It would be foolish to think that, after hearing that explanation, I might be one of the last people left alive on an empty world, hiding in my secure basement room, spiting some unthinkable deceptive entity just by refusing to be captured. It's a perfect explanation for every single strange thing I've seen or heard, and I have every reason in the world to let go all my fears and open the door. And that's exactly why I'm not going to. How can I be sure? How can I know what's real and what's deception? All of these damn things with their wires and signals that originate from some unseen origin? They're not real, I can't be sure. Signals through a camera, faked video, deceptive phone calls, emails, even a television lying broken on the floor. How can I possibly know it's real? It's just signals, waves, light, the door. It's bashing on the door. It's trying to get in. What insane mechanical contrivance could it be using to simulate the sound of men attacking the heavy wood so well? At least I'll finally see it with my own eyes. There's nothing left in here for it to deceive me with. I've ripped apart everything else. It can't deceive my eyes, can it? Seen with your own eyes. Don't trust them. They... Wait. Was that desperate message telling me to trust my eyes or warning me about my eyes, too. Oh, my God. What's the difference between a camera and my eyes? They both turn light into electronic signals. They're the same. I can't be deceived. I have to be sure. I have to be sure. Date unknown. I calmly asked for paper and a pen, day in and day out, until it finally gave them to me. Not that it matters. What am I going to do? Poke my eyes out? The bandages feel like part of me now. The pain is gone. I figure this will be one of my last chances to write legibly, as without my sight to correct mistakes, my hands will slowly forget the motions involved. This is a sort of self-indulgent, this writing. It's a relic of another time, because I'm certain everyone left in this world is dead or something far worse. I sit against the padded wall day in and day out. The entity brings me food and water. It masks itself as a kind nurse, as an unsympathetic doctor. I think it knows that my hearing has sharpened considerably now that I live in darkness. It fakes conversations in the hallways and on the off chance I might overhear. One of the nurses talks about having a baby soon. One of the doctors lost his wife in a car accident. None of it matters. None of it is real. None of it gets to me. Not like she does. That's the worst part. The part I almost can't handle. The thing comes to me, masquerading as Amy. Its recreation is perfect. It sounds exactly like Amy. Feels exactly like her. It even produces a reasonable facsimile of tears that it makes me feel on its lifelike cheeks. When it first dragged me here, it told me all the things I wanted to hear. It told me that she loved me, 
that she had always loved me, and that I didn't understand why I did this, that we could still have a life together. If only I would stop insisting that I was being deceived. It wanted me to believe, no, it needed me to believe that she was real. I almost fell for it, I really did. I doubted myself for the longest time. In the end, though, it was all too perfect, too flawless, and too real. The false Amy used to come every day, and then every week, and finally stopped coming altogether. But I don't think the entity will give up. I think the waiting game is just another one of its gambits. I'll resist it for the rest of my life if I have to. I don't know what happened to the rest of the world, but I do know that this thing needs me to fall for its deceptions. If it needs that, then maybe, just maybe, I'm a thorn in its agenda. Maybe Amy is still alive out there somewhere, kept alive only by my will to resist the deceiver. I hold on to that hope, rocking back and forth in my cell to pass the time. I will never give in. I will never break. I am a hero. The doctor read the paper the patient had scribbled on. It was barely readable, written in the shaky script of one who could not see. He wanted to smile at the man's steadfast resolve, a reminder of the human will to survive, but he knew that the patient was completely delusional. After all, a sane man would have fallen for the deception long ago. The doctor wanted to smile. He wanted to whisper words of encouragement to the delusional man. He wanted to scream, but the nerve filaments wrapped around his head and into his eyes made him do otherwise. His body walked into the cell like a puppet and told the patient once more that he was wrong and that there was nobody trying to deceive him. I hope you enjoyed Psychosis by Matt Demersky, as performed by yours truly. If you'd like to support indie horror and author Matt Demersky, visit Amazon.com and pick up a copy of his books today. Search for him by name on Amazon.com. His last name is spelled D-Y-M-E-R-S-K-I. Demersky. Or visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Matt. Once again, that's simplyscarypodcast.com slash Matt. As an Amazon affiliate, visiting that link supports us by allowing us to collect a small fee if you decide to make a purchase on Amazon afterwards. Thanks for your support of this program, our authors, and of Indie Horror. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this bonus episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark, part of a new series in which I share a handful of the creepy tales from my extensive audio archive with you each and every Wednesday. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear more content from my archive, as well as premium extended editions of my regular episodes featuring twice the terror, 
Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next time, stay spooky and get some sleep. If you can. <laughs>
and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.